10 years ago, a small group of community members looked at the rusty rails that ran through their neighborhoods and saw the potential for a usable, beautiful public space. When completed, the rail park will connect more than 10 neighborhoods with three miles of continuous green space. A space for everyone, young and old, athletes and artists, neighbors and visitors alike. Friends of the Rail Park presents Sounds of the Rail Park, an audio guide to the sights, sounds, and spaces of the Rail Park. I'm Rebecca Cordes Chan, Executive Director of Friends of the Rail Park, and the next three episodes are part of a small series named The Three Mile Vision. This three episode series highlights the communities the Three Mile Rail Line touches and the promising future to transform the spaces into a park system. This podcast is about the hope, possibility, and neighborhood effects of giving an abandoned rail line a new life. This is a huge undertaking, so we teamed up with local journalist Nicole Curry to complete the series. Take a listen as she travels the rail line, focusing on three major parts, the viaduct, the cut, and the tunnel. If you walk by Community College of Philadelphia in Center City, chances are you've been able to look down and see a vastly overgrown open section 30 feet below street level. This is the section of the rail park vision known as the cut. The cut runs from North Broad Street near the old Inquirer building to behind the Rodin Museum. It's lined with high stone walls and a series of bridges, and some portions mimic an urban forest. Others are simply used as small paved parking lots. When you walk this section and look closely at the community that resides there, you'll notice it's changing. A lot of construction is happening in the neighborhoods the cut crosses through that, due to their industrial past, don't always have the same rich residential history that many other Philadelphia neighborhoods might have. Nicole explores these fairly new communities and the wilderness of the cut below their feet. We'll start with how this came to be. You know, I, I've used the analogy before that the rail park is the string on a string of pearls and little places like this are the pearls along the way. So there's a whole bunch of in interesting sites all along the rail park. All right, my name is Joe Walsh. I'm the vice president of the Friends of Matthias Baldwin Park. If you've ever walked past Philadelphia Community College, chances are you've been able to look down and see a vastly overgrown open section about 30 feet below street level. And this section runs from North Broad Street near the Old Enquirer building to behind the Rodin Museum, where 22nd Street meets Pennsylvania Avenue. It's lined with high stone walls and meets a series of bridges that support the city's north and southbound streets. Some portions mimic an urban forest, in others you will find small parking lots. Long story short, this section of the Reading Viaduct is called The Cut, and here is a little history. It was just a railroad until 1992, but before that, I mean, obviously this whole area was uh, the homeland of the Lenape Lenape Indians. Uh, and then the Swedes and the Dutch and the English settlers came here, and then a name everyone knows came here in 1682, that was William Penn. So he's kind of like the crystallization of uh, at least European history in this area. And uh, he had his estate eventually built right up where those, uh, well, you can't see them from here, where City View is, so a block away. That was Springettsbury Manor. Uh, and uh, his estate went from 12th Street 
all the way up towards what is now Lemon Hill. So it was, uh, I think it was 3,000 acres. It was huge. After him uh, came uh, Robert Morris. So after Robert Morris, who was one of the, uh, the founding fathers, after he signed the Constitution in uh, 1787, he then became a, a bigger investor than he was. So he bought a lot of this land. Uh, he got an easement for this cut here because he wanted to build a canal. So he wanted to connect the Schuylkill River with the Delaware River. So he lived at what was called the Hills, which is now Lemon, Lemon Hill. And he wanted to start the Schuylkill entrance to the canal there and go right along here uh, to the Delaware, connect up with uh, Peg's Run, which is a, a creek that went from the Delaware to about Broad Street. He uh, had a lot of speculative invent investments in land and he went bankrupt and was put in debtor's prison. And this area here was then chopped up and sold off. The next names that come along are Oliver Evans, uh, who invented a powerful steam engine. Uh, and once that happened, then factories didn't have to be next to the river for water power to supply their, their energy needs. Uh, and then Josiah White, another name that's probably unfamiliar to most of your listeners, uh, he had a wire factory up in East Falls, uh, and he de uh, determined that you could burn anthracite. He figured out a way to burn anthracite coal uh, as the energy source. And this neighborhood basically combined those two things, steam, uh, steam engines and the use of coal to supply energy needs all along the rail cut, or wasn't the rail cut then, but it was the old canal. And then the locomotive builders moved in. So you had uh, Harrison and Eastwick down at 12th and Willow, which is where the phase one of the rail park is. Uh, then you had Norris locomotives two blocks away where CCP uh, is in the, Frank, in the uh, third Mint building. Uh, and then you had Matthias Baldwin come in uh, at uh, Spring Garden Hamilton. So they had, this is basically Pennsylvania Avenue right here, and it was a surface rail line. And then the city in 1898, or slightly before that, uh, said there's too many accidents, uh, there's too much congestion, so can you either raise this rail line, like at the, uh, the L down near the rail park, or could you submerge it? and this section was submerged. So you have the tunnel starting over to the west, then you have this open cut right here, uh, and then you have the elevated section where the rail park phase one is now. Uh, but that was all in 1898. And then basically the Reading Railroad uh, acquired the, the tract and ran their locomotives till um, 1992. And since then it's been abandoned basically. the abandoned rail line has been an eyesore in the middle of a changing area. Because if you walk around the cut, you'll see the community college, high-rise apartments, and essentially more opportunity to build. But transforming the cut may not be as simple as phase one. After this section of the rail line was cut up and sold, SEPTA inherited the cut. And although groups envisioned the lower level space differently, today it's still there doing nothing. Friends of Matthias Baldwin Park President Jim Fennell joined Joe and I in their park, discussing what the future may hold for a space essentially in their backyard.
Well, it became essentially, uh, actually at one point it had trees. It was, uh, it was an urban forest. Uh, more recently, those were ripped out so that parking could be put in down there. Uh, but it was urban forest for about four blocks at, at one point. Well, a few years ago, uh, maybe within the last 10, SEPTA talked about putting an express bus line down there. There is room for an express bus line coming from North Philly, coming in just above the art museum, coming out at Broad Street. And, but that's wide enough because it had four tracks of rail tracks down there. It could have an express bus line, which would be good for the community uh, and link a lot of neighborhoods. And it could still have a, 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 pal, a, tra a trail alongside. So th that's not a bad idea, but who knows if that, anything like that would happen. It's hard to make predictions, especially about the future, as they say. But uh, I think, I mean, you have the High Line as an example in New York. I mean, that is a, you can't go there anymore, as Yogi Berra says, because uh, it's too crowded. But uh, the, uh, you know, I think what I see happening is that people are not going to go in the office as much. They're not going to get their social interactions in office space because they'll be working from home a lot. So a place like this will be their social uh place to gather so and that happened last summer during the pandemic this place was mobbed uh, so uh, when you have places like that I think it's to the benefit of the community a place where people can go and just take a walk well, we think that there'll have to be a link between this particular node of beauty I can't imagine it happening in my lifetime <laughs> I mean if we're talking 20 years from now <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope it's in Jim's lifetime. So either it happens rapidly or Jim lives a long time. But uh, you know, That was James Fennell and Joe Walsh from Friends of Matthias Baldwin Park. While the cut looks overgrown today, three years ago, a group of artists cleaned it up for a special project called the Moon Garden. Here's more about their project and why they chose a deserted place to showcase the moon. Plus, this next segment will share some insight as to what cleaning up the cut could mean. So I'm Eugene and I'm a collaborator with Matt Suab and Nadia Hironaka on the Moon Viewing platform. Uh, I'm Matthew Suab, uh, one of the collaborators and um, I work uh, regularly in collaboration with my wife and creative partner, Nadia. Um, I'm Nadia Hironaka, one of the collaborators for Moon Viewing platform. Thank you for joining me today to talk about the Moon Festival. My first question is, I really wanna know what you all thought of the space when you first did your walkthrough, this really overgrown cut area that was going to be your art installation. What were your thoughts? When we first did the walk, um, as Matt had mentioned with, with some members of Mural Arts and from Friends of Rail Park, we, when we came across the area that was selected, it was at first glance amazing because it was this wild, chaotic mess of like basically nature just taking over this, this large expansive space, the cut area. And there were all kinds of wild trees and plants and shrubs and bushes. And I think that kind of mess of, of almost like a jungle space really excited us just visually. The thing that really caught 
uh, my eye, and I think Nadia's in particular, um, when we were walking the length of the viaduct was um, this expansive facade, uh, north-facing facade on a building uh, that is part of the Community College of Philadelphia. And I mean, it was about 150 feet across with very few windows on the surface. And so it immediately jumped out as this amazing projection screen, uh, you know, sort of on the scale of, of the city itself. So we were attracted to the site for that reason, in addition to, to this amazing uh, overgrown landscape that was sort of below street level. There was a lot of practical elements within the space as well that were going to be very conducive for us to work with a large scale um, projections and places to like house and locate both like audio and um, video equipment and projectors. But I think it was the just how overgrown the space was. I Nadia and I work primarily with moving image, um, often in immersive installations projection-based imagery. Um, and so when I was walking along the viaduct with group from Mural Arts and Friends of the Rail Park, uh, you know, during our early site visits, we were looking for, I was looking for a spot um, that was conducive to projecting uh, video and film outside. There were a lot of logistical concerns. And, you know, when you're situating a public artwork, you want to be considerate of where the, of that public experience, where the public can gather, um, how many people can gather, what kind of sight lines you have, you know, are there opportunities to catch people's eyes from a distance, you know, who may not uh, be coming explicitly to visit a public artwork, but might just be passersby. Um, and I was also looking to not talk about trains. Um, <laughs> we, we did have this discussion early on. We, Nadia and I often work um, site specifically. Our work has moved into the public realm, uh, even though we primarily work in galleries and museums. Um, over the past, I don't know, seven or eight years, we've, we've taken on more public projects and we really uh, enjoy it. But, uh, but it's challenging and, you know, we, we have, uh, there's a lot of things we're looking for when we approach a site. So it's no secret that the Reading Viaduct is owned by multiple parties. I'm curious, were there any other barriers or obstacles that came up when you were planning the Moon Garden and the festival all together? I have a good segue for that. Go, go uh, for it. So initially our plans were to invite the public to come into the space. Uh, in fact, that was a big part of, of, of how we developed the project. You know, as we all know, there are so many parts of the viaduct and the cut that are off limits to the public. And it was really important for us to try to make it such that the public could visit these spaces, right? And the term carceral archipelago comes to mind, not much of a stretch, but we found that we weren't allowed to have the public in the space. That, that decision or, or that ruling was made while we were in the midst of it. Uh, so that changed things a bit. And that changed it from a space where the public could come and experience and actually visit a garden to uh, an experience where they would view it from a different uh, uh, location, and look down onto it or look at it quote-unquote viewing garden. Initially, we, I remember we were, we'd talked about 
actually planting a garden, investigating an orchard. And this was when we thought it could be a multi-year project. And I recall Matt was like, no. Uh, but then it didn't even have to come to that because we were told by SEPTA that we weren't allowed to disturb the soil. And so no planting or planting was out because of that. Um, and then we found out later on that uh, that was not correct. And we could actually disturb the soil. We just couldn't disturb it and bring it somewhere else. But between those two points in time, we had refocused on the Carrie Sensui, which is the dry landscape garden, um, which is probably the main influence in terms of um, landscape, which was obviously a perfect application there because most of it was about some planting, but you know, not food, of course and the application of gravel and shaping the space. Now for listeners who may have missed the festival, please walk me through what it was like to see this installation visually. So we're talking about roughly a, a block, um, one city block, um, not quite as wide as a city block, but in terms of from one bridge to the next on 17th and 18th. 18th Street was the main sort of viewing, probably the best viewing location. And for a passerby, if they were coming across a piece, especially at night, what would happen is as you know they're approaching our piece, um, either from north or south, but walking over the bridge, they would probably see the projection and they're gonna see an image. And as they get closer to the bridge and can look down within the space, they're gonna see a garden, this rock garden that we created with some abstract shapes, circles, some longs, kind of squiggly lines and some patterns that were meant to be sort of a reflection of the cutouts from the garage that was the wall of our projection surface. So you're seeing an abstract sort of pattern with rocks uh, light gray rocks and also sort of dark brown, sort of blackish um, uh, mulch that is kind of forming and shaping the, our dry garden with some plants that are scattered without and then a section that becomes much more sort of wild towards the, um, the 17th street side. There's also mirrors that are placed in the ground and kind of covered up a little bit on the edges with the gravel and some of the, the dark mulch. So you're seeing reflections during the daytime of the glass that's sort of mimicking the sky, clouds you might see passing through if you're again looking down over the bridge. The, at, in the evening time, the giant projection on the south side facing garage wall is pretty expansive. And there you would see the series of eight short sort of vignettes that each one encapsulates a different phase of the moon. Also, Eugene had set up very, very um, focused speakers so that as you're walking across the bridge, and you're getting closer and closer, you're gonna hear um, different soundtracks that are coming across the, the bridge. So you're hearing sound that's kind of aimed towards you, the passerby, the walker across the bridge. And then there's also lights um, that were set up in the garden as well at nighttime. So the whole thing has this really kind of fantastical feel. And we intended it to be this kind of beautiful and sort of magical surprise for someone who's really maybe a commuter, you know, or just in the evening walking back and forth across the bridge, and then to kind of almost stumble across this little bit of like magical space where you're looking down below, you're looking into the cut and having this really intriguing, again, kind of magical looking space revealed to you. Eugene, why don't you talk a little bit about then the performance nights, like what that looked like? Oh, sure thing. So um, we had three separate performance dates and we were treating the whole as a festival 
originally we had thought it would stretch over several months, but everything was condensed to three weekends. Also, it's important to note that Moon Theory Platform is a name borrowed from a very well-known dry landscape garden in Kyoto. One of the features of that space is this idea that you could, it, it appears that the moon is on the ground uh, or Mount Fuji depends on who you talk to. And so we're definitely inspired by it, but in no ways did we attempt to copy it. And uh, obviously we'd centered uh, the festival around the moon, moon festival. So on three consecutive Saturdays, we had a series of performances, uh, which as Nadia said, is, is something uh, that's characteristic of a lot of gardens where, you know, it's, it's a gathering place, uh, it's a celebration. And it was one that could only be viewed from, the, from either the bridge, which obviously is symbolic for so many reasons, or the parking deck, which is also symbolic for so many American reasons. But the entrance to the garden for the performers was essentially a gravel bridge. And that's, you know, a feature in, in many forms of theater and, and festival rituals where you cross from one space to another. In this case, uh, I'll use the term that Nadia um, emphasized magical, a the ordinary space into the magical space. And so we very much brought, signaled that um, very physically with, the entrance of the performers to the space. And then the performing quote unquote stage was actually constructed of the, the large, a large circle of gravel that was surrounded by plantings. I want to gather a little more insight into why the Moon Festival. Nadia, you mentioned that this was something for people who were maybe commuting to work, who were just walking by and seeing this beautiful surprise but I want to understand more of why this specific experience, why the moon phases, why this festival in the garden, what did you want people to receive when viewing this? The idea of bringing the community together for a celebratory act, I think during the Trump era was very important for us. I think we had talked about and discussed making initially maybe a piece that was maybe a little more political and decided to back off from that. I think a lot of it had to do with our own personal investment with um, politics and sort of community engagement and wanting to not go down the rabbit hole of a lot of sort of negative, negative vibes, frustration and anger, but in ways to think about how we could draw from the immediate people in our communities who were really vibrant and thriving and doing wonderful things and think more of a celebration instead of a, a public rant. Um, so that was, you know, also the notion of, okay, how do we bring people together to this space to celebrate? And, you know, through our research and looking at, you know, different moon viewing spaces and gardens and sort of constructions, it seemed like the moon and viewing the moon is something that most of us enjoy. And, it's also something really, again, going back to that word magical, like when you're walking outside at night and you happen to notice it's a full moon or it's a half moon, or there's a slight, you know, beautiful color or tint over the moon. It's something that kind of stops you in your tracks and just kind of takes you away from any negative headspace that you might be in. The moon belongs to everybody. And that wound up being a kind of guiding ethic um, for much of the piece as it existed as a uh, physical installation uh, as the viewing garden 
through the moon viewing festivals and the gatherings that happen there with members of our communities um, and more broadly speaking, you know, the entire Philadelphia community and the film itself where you kind of see uh, the moon being kind of possessed in some ways by each of the characters uh, in the film who is tending to the garden. So the, the film itself um, looks broadly at community, at that idea of community, um, you know, ways to kind of nurture and sustain a community through creative acts that includes characters or multiple actors who are playing the same character of the garden, caring for nurturing the garden that you're watching the film in. And each of them kind of at some point in their vignette owns the moon in, in their own way that they, they, they possess the moon. It becomes part of their body or part of the landscape uh, that, that they're in. And it's something that, you know, is a fairly universal, not fairly, it's probably amongst the most universal experiences is, you know, gazing at the moon. I mean, I can't stress enough how important it is, I think, to have some green space in the city and a space for artists who are working with sort of larger, more public kind of concepts to have the space and the freedom, I think, to experiment and really share. I mean, I think it's really a rewarding experience for the general public and the immediate community and even the, the distant community to have that opportunity to catch, you know, artworks that are outside of the confines of, you know, a gallery space or a museum space. And that kind of experience was, you know, for I think our audience, really, really amazing and really important. And I think delivers a different kind of experience um, than how we often traditionally see art. And that is something that I would love to see continued and a little bit more expansive in the city. Um, so I, my hope is that the rail park does continue um, development and working with creating more interesting and unique spaces for enriching exper experiences. That was Nadia Hiranaka, Eugene Liu, and Matthew Sweep. Transforming a three mile rail line owned by multiple groups, it's going to be quite the challenge. One CCP professor wrote an article that gained a lot of attention in 2018 on just that topic. The 40-year Philadelphia resident dove into what the cut could be, a park, transit, or remain nothing. What I mentioned before, um, over it kind of grassy expanse ends. This is actually weirdly looking um, manicured. So I don't know if like... My name is Jeff Markovitz. I'm an associate professor of English at the Community College of Philadelphia. So I understand sort of the history of it being a, an industrial transport line that um, is obviously no, no longer in use. And there's been movements, some grassroots, some with more um, political traction and economic traction to shift its use from its old industrial state to a new park or perhaps even transit. There are a lot of different ideas that people have, but I know that Friends of the Rail Park are currently interested in producing a, an elevated park system that also includes uh, the underground portion that runs through CCP's campus. I am an advocate for turning this essentially useless space into a green space. 
You know, I mean, I'm almost 40 years old and I've lived in or around this city that entire time. And even in the last 20 years, the city is unrecognizable to what it used to be. So CCP's campus is two blocks of the city, right north of Center City. And we don't really have an acceptable green space for the students. Uh, we have a small courtyard and the students use neighboring parks. But as far as our campus is concerned itself, being a large campus with a large student body and a large staff body as well, we have no real outdoor green space to offer. And I think that's problematic. I don't think that anyone is purposefully leaving CCP out. I mean, this is, you know, this is like where the college is, right? It's just that I think when we tend to prioritize the big universities, the, the, the ones that have the names, the ones that aren't stigmatized is what I want to say, the ones that aren't stigmatized as community colleges. And so this is sort of like an afterthought for a community college. Why do people at a community college a commuter college need benches to sit on to read their books, right? Like, uh, whereas you know, I think if you look at like Pan or Drexel or any of the big ones, Villanova, you'll probably notice there's a budget for landscaping. There's a, you know, there's a mentality where these students deserve it. And I'm just arguing that our students deserve it too. Like we deserve the things that anybody at a, a successful academic institution should have. Uh, so it's not like people are purposefully taking our parks away, but they are purposefully ignoring that we don't have one. I think as people like, are taken to the outdoors. Like I'm an outdoorsy person. So like whenever I get a chance, like I'm out hiking or camping or sleeping in the woods and I sometimes don't know why, like why do I like sleeping on the ground? But we're drawn to it, right? Like we're drawn to outdoor spaces. And I think we have this like mystique that cities have to be concrete and indoors. And that's not necessarily true. I think the greatest cities in the world respect the outdoors and incorporate that into their fabric. And I think that Philadelphia can, you know, really start to think of itself as these greatest cities and not just sort of like a, a runner-up you know if we're more progressive about the way that we think about spaces where people will actually live you know people deserve to live in an urban setting that also has places of respite places of peace you know and I think that you know you don't have to live in Rittenhouse to have to experience it you should be able to live in brewery town and center city and I don't even know what they're calling this neighborhood anymore. Spring arts neighborhood, spring garden. I mean, you know, they change all the time. In the municipal bounds of Philadelphia is the most beautiful park space of any city in the world. And I'm obviously subjective about that. It's the Wissahickon Valley Park in the northwest section of the city. I mean, people know of it, right? But you can't get there if you don't have a car or if you don't live in the northwest. It's this beautiful, enormous, municipal park in the city of Philadelphia that you can't get to. <laughs> there are buses, you can take six buses and get there, right? That's fine, or you can get an Uber to drop you off to go to Devil's Pool or to go hiking or whatever. But like, I mean, as much as that is a wonder, it's not on people's radar. People don't know about it. People don't know how to get there, what it is. This is an opportunity to create a park in the middle of the city where thousands and thousands of people can walk out of their doors and go to it. You know, and I think that that's the big sort of reason for thinking about it in this way is that, and I'm gonna use the term that I used before, people deserve it. That was Jeffrey Markovitz. As you can hear, this community is really just starting out. There aren't deep residential routes to this part of the city, as most of the area's business corridors and new high-rise apartments and is potentially the perfect place for a park. 
What I appreciate about the people Nicole interviewed for this episode is that they all see the potential in the cut and want it to be more than what it is today. In the case of the Moon Garden, that desire became a reality, albeit briefly. Thank you for listening to Sounds of the Rail Park, a podcast and audio tour created by Friends of the Rail Park. You just heard our second installment of the Three Mile Vision series, produced by local journalist Nicole Curry. Friends of the Rail Park is the 501c3 organization that drives the vision behind the transformation of historic rail lines that traverse Philadelphia into a continuous three-mile greenway, a greenway that connects and enlivens the social, historical, and environmental fabric of Philadelphia's communities. Special thanks to our partners, Philadelphia Parks and Recreation, the William Penn Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the 1830 Family Foundation, Comcast NBC Universal, PICO, the Philadelphia Cultural Fund, the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development, and the Board of Directors and many friends and members of the Friends of the Rail Park. Special thanks to our partners, Philadelphia Parks and Recreation, the William Penn Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the 1830 Family Foundation, Comcast NBC Universal, PICO, the Philadelphia Cultural Fund, the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development, and the board of directors and many friends and members of the Friends of the Rail Park.